morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. I haven't been on this pulpit for a while. This is nice to be back. Um, good to be with everyone this morning. And uh, certainly, if you're someone who's new with us, either here or online, we've uh, been in a series out of the book of Exodus called The Gospel According to Moses, Discovering the Lost Language of Salvation. And um, I get the privilege this morning of preaching out of the last chapter of Exodus. So it's a wonderful chapter, and we'll be looking at it this morning. But before we do, just um, a couple things to lead us into uh, what this focus is in this particular chapter. I was just thinking a lot about this this week as I've been thinking about God's word in Exodus 40, the idea of presence. How important is presence? Uh, I, was, I was thinking about this. Uh, this week we were watching our grandkids, and um, they had come over our house, and they had dinner with us, and we were going to take them back to their house, uh, get them some baths, and put them to bed while mom and dad were out. And so uh, my two-year-old uh, grandson, as we're getting ready uh, to go, he turns and he looks at me with this serious face, and he says, Pop, you're going with us, right? And I said, yes, of course I'm going with you. And you could just see the sort of this relief and a smile on his face. And, and the idea behind that is, is that, you know, Pop's a lot of fun. Pop's like a cartoon, so it's good having Pop around. But the other part of it is, is that um, I offer that sense of security. Pop's going to be there. And it's this idea of presence um, was very important to him. Um, thinking about it again, I was thinking about uh, when we're in, in company of people who are grieving, how important presence is. We don't even need to say a word, and sometimes we feel like we have to, but we don't even need to say a word. When someone who's grieving, just that, that sense of presence, that they're not alone, there is comfort in that. You know, and uh, going to memorial services and funeral services over the years, how different it is when you go. I, I've actually been, I've actually done a funeral service where only three people were there. And it's, it just seems so empty and bleak, and then you come to a memorial service where so many people are at, and they stand with people in their grief, and there's something about presence, that, that, that there's something that's good about this. Um, we, you know, we recently went through the whole COVID, and if you remember, during COVID, nobody could go in the hospitals, and my father was in the hospital, and my father's a family man. And so the idea of being in a hospital by himself uh, it just made him unstable, so much so that I got a call from the hospital saying, you need to come in here because your father is just really struggling with this. And, uh, you know, for him and for anybody who went through that, it was this idea of the sense of stability, that you had an advocate there for you. You had somebody there with you. Um, and, 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 again, presence is important. Uh, this summer we, as a team, uh, we learned sign language enough that all of us could go to a deaf school for a whole day of elementary deaf children. And the presence, our presence there all together, there was something so powerful about that. They, it gave them a sense of belonging and a sense of dignity that people could actually be there with them. And so when we think about all these aspects of presence, we're going to move into be thinking about God's presence. Think about that. God's presence brings comfort, it brings security, deliverance from fear, it brings belonging, it brings all these things 
that uh, we sort of experience together in life. And so that's what we're going to look at today, God's presence. But as I'm thinking about that a little bit, we have to sort of go back a little bit in the scripture text to come where we're going. So where we want to go is we want to talk about it's this whole particular piece started with the people rebelling against God when Moses was on the mountain for many days. Um, they basically took matters into their own hands. They told Aaron and they decided they were going to make their own gods. There was the sense that they needed to have something like that. There was wild parties going on. We know the story. Moses comes down. He breaks the tablets. God's anger, his wrath is certainly made, made known in the camp itself with everything that was happening. Um, and then as God speaks through Moses about his anger and disappointment of what's going on, there is utter sorrow after this wrath has been known. And there's a, there's a mourning over what they've done. And this, this was the beginning of where Ed went last week about the renewing of the covenant. You know, what did that anger mean? Let's talk. That idea that there was this talking to God in the midst of this. And um, remember from last week, uh, there was this idea that the presence of God, and actually Josh read a little bit of this this morning, um, when we go to Exodus 33, starting at verse 14, you can put that up, Zach. Then the Lord replied, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, show me your glory. And, and the way God showed him the glory was to set him in the rock and his back went by him. And then these words that Ed really elaborated on last week, which was so powerful, out of 34, starting in verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving witness, rebellion and sin. Wow. This amazing promise. And this, this was the whole turning point. And what we saw as people repent, we see the beginning of what revival is. And then... Uh, Moses goes back up to the mountain. He gets the laws again, and he comes down, and he explains to them about the laws and the Sabbath, and then he tells them it's time to make the tabernacle. It's time to make the tabernacle. God is going to dwell with his people. His presence is going to be here. And, and because these people are now experiencing revival uh, he calls for an offering of materials so they could build the lampstand, the ark, the, you know, all the different lamp, uh, breastplate and all the different articles, the altars. They needed all these materials. And it says that this offering went so well that they had to stop people from bringing things. And one of the things we know is when they left Egypt, it says they plundered the Egyptians. In other words, the Egyptians gave them so much of their gold and their silver and their jewels and everything that here they were offering them up and it was going to be used for God's house, for God's presence, for his tabernacle. And there's this, this amazing movement of the Holy Spirit among the whole community. There's an outpouring of generosity. 
There's all their skills and gifts being used in obedience to God's instruction and an eagerness of heart to do this together, working in unity for God's purpose. The whole community set out to using their skills to craft the pieces necessary for the tabernacle. Ark, the table of presents, the lampstands, the altar of incense, altar of burnt offerings, the basin for washing, the curtains, all the courtyard material, the priestly garments, the breastpiece. And this was to be accomplished in 40 days to coincide with the first day of the first month of the second year, which was to call to memory the deliverance from Egypt that deliverance through the night of Passover and the Red Sea parting, that deliverance which was so memorable for a people who had been in slavery for 400 years. And this was to be a New Year celebration with its culmination being heaven coming to earth in the presence of God inhabiting the tabernacle. Moses in his role as mediator, was responsible to make sure every detail of the tabernacle's design given to him by God was to be accomplished. Every piece had a specific place in the tabernacle, each with its own purpose and significance. So let's read a little bit from Exodus 40, just to get this idea. We're going to read Exodus 40, 1 through 16, and then verse 33. So let me just read it. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting on the first day of the first month, place the ark of the covenant law in it and shield the ark with curtain. Bring in the table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. Place the gold altar of incense in front of the ark of the covenant law and put the curtain at the entrance to the tabernacle. Place the altar of burnt offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set up the courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. Take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and everything in it. Consecrate it and all its furnishings and it will be holy. Then anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils. Consecrate the altar and it will be most holy. Anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate them. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments Anoint him and consecrate him so he may serve me as a priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so they may serve me as priest. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue throughout their generations. Moses did everything just as the Lord commanded him. It's quite a list. God definitely had an idea of how his place where he was going to live was to be. He certainly had the interior design uh, acumen, you know. I remember when my father and my uncle decided that they were going to call themselves interior designers, and I was one of the person who was working for them. It was a disaster. <laughs> this is not a disaster. Uh, and then it ends in verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Let's get an idea what that looks like. Just, just a couple pictures to get an idea. Can you put that first picture up? So this is the tent of meeting. And you can see all the articles arranged in the way that it was told in this scripture, told to Moses. You see the ark, 
You see the altar sacri- of uh, incense. You see the lampstand. You see the, the table of uh, bread, the presents. You see where the high priest is supposed to come in. Okay, so let's get now. That's the tent of meetings. Let's get the larger courtyard. Go to the next picture. So there's the courtyard, okay? You see there's one entrance, and there's the altar of burnt offerings, that first, and then the basin for the cleaning and sanctifying, and then, of course, once a year, the holy priest would go in there. So that's, that's the high priest would go in there. So that's sort of the courtyard, all right? That's what you're looking at there. Um, just to give you an idea, um, this was right in the middle of the camp. So Moses completed the work as the Lord had commanded. Both Moses and the community in the wilderness were living in obedience And this revival had brought new joy, a new unity of purpose, and an anticipation of God's presence being with them. And then in verse 34, here's what we read. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wow, what a New Year celebration. Think about that. The cloud of glory, the radiance of God's glory filled the tabernacle. The glory that filled the tabernacle was a spectacular display of the radiance of God's being. The God of Exodus, the God of power, who made the heavens and the earth, the God of justice who plagued the Egyptians, the God of love who kept this covenant with Israel, the God of providence who led his people through the wilderness, the God of truth who gave them his law, the God of mercy who atoned for their sins, the God of holiness who set them apart for service. This great God was present in his glory. Hallelujah. Just think about that for a second. In his glory, he was present with his people in his new home, in the middle of their camp. And he was going to go with them, as Josh was talking about a little earlier. And yet, this is interesting, Moses could not enter that courtyard. He could not enter it. And and the idea behind this was, certainly this was made to approach God. But here we see God is holy. And the the courtyard was in place because at this particular point, what was to be remembered is approaching God as sinners. You could only do that with sacrifice. It would bring them into right relationship. And this God was teaching the people the necessity for atonement right there the necessity for atonement, the foreshadowing of Christ, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes. And even though, as the scripture said, God lives in unapproachable light, the sacrifices provided a way for God to dwell with his people, to be close with his people. Listen to how the book of Exodus ends, verses 36 through 38. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, 
and the fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Anybody have any idea of how many times they camped and then recamped in the 40 years? They say between 36 and 42 times. So approximately once a year. Now think about this. Here's the picture of the camp. You put that up. That's the picture of the camp, okay? There it is in the middle, three tribes on each side. And in front of those tribes were the military outposts to protect them. We're looking at about a million people, maybe a little more than a million people. Can you imagine moving a million people in the wilderness? So you can see where that maybe it was once a year that they moved. But here's the other thing about this. Think about that. See these people over there? Maybe they're scouts from another nation. Can you imagine looking at that? And then seeing in the middle of that the cloud of glory and at night the pillar of fire? What a display of the glory of God. Would it not be frightening to other nations? And would it not be a display of God to other nations? Think about that for a second. Did you ever get that picture in your mind? That's really powerful, isn't it? We sometimes think, oh, yeah, they were in the desert. They traveled around. But no, this is over a million people traveling. And this is God in the middle of them, with them, traveling with them. Powerful. So you can see why this was a great comfort. It gave people confidence for the future, traveling with God, God leading them. God would guide them. And he would lead them every step of the way in all their travels and through all their troubles. What God did for Israel was glorious. Think about it. The exodus from Egypt was so famous that people are still talking about today, right? Here we are today talking about it. People talk about it today. The glory in the tabernacle was the climax of the exodus but it was not the climax of redemption. It was only the first glimmerings of the glory of God that had been paired for us in Jesus. This is where the story moves to. We can look at the other parts of the different temples, but eventually God's glory left the people until these words from John Chapter 1, verse 1 to 4 and 14. Listen to this word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That word for dwelling is tabernacled, tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle, the presence of God was now there in Jesus Christ and I love this quote that I put there for you. This is from Phil Riken and his commentary. 
And I think he just brings it all together, how Exodus foreshadowed Christ and how Christ fulfilled all these symbols in Exodus. Listen to this. The book of Exodus is really his story. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation, the mediator who goes for us before God. Jesus is the lamb of our Passover, the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is our way out of Egypt, the deliverer who baptizes us in the sea of grace. Jesus is our bread in the wilderness, the provider who gives us what we need for daily life. Jesus is our voice from the mountain, declaring his law for our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning. Through him we offer praise to God. Jesus is the light on our lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. And Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. I got to hear an amen here somewhere. An amen to this. This is Jesus, the fulfillment. The fulfillment of all this is in Christ, the tabernacle who came to earth. Hebrews pulls it together and says, he's the radiance of God's glory. He is the better high priest, the better blood, the better sacrifice, the better mediator, the better covenant. Hallelujah. He says to us, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will be with you to the end of the age. I will go with you. Hallelujah. We are not alone. So powerful. Well, Jesus isn't here anymore. What now? Well, Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit to the disciples on the night before he dies. Tell them that he's leaving and he'll be opening up the door for the gift of the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with them. The Spirit of truth, the Spirit of power, the counselor, the comforter, the one who would reveal this truth to us. So he promises this. He goes to the cross. He dies on the cross, as we know, making atonement. And then he rises from the dead. The amen from God that the sacrifice has been accepted opens up the whole new door of resurrected life. And where, what is this preparing us for? Well, after his resurrection, just before he ascends to heaven... He tells the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised spirit. And after 10 days of prayer, the spirit arrives with wind and tongues of fire, bringing the gift of languages and anointing Peter to preach the first gospel message heard by thousands from many nations and 3,000 repent and believe. The new spirit-filled church is a reality and on the move. Spirit-filled Church. What is that spirit-filled church? I love the way Paul brings this together in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become O holy temple in the Lord, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Hallelujah. The spirit now lives in us. 
We are now the walking tabernacles. We now have the presence. God goes with us everywhere. Everywhere we go, God goes with us. His presence is with us. Have you ever got a hold of that? What is that like? Think about that for a second. I think about that a lot. I think about, there's times when I think about, and I'm sure you have too, because, God, I don't really feel you. Are you really here? That ever happened? God, I don't sense that you're, uh, you're on the same page as me in the situation here. But God is with us. He's always with us. The Spirit is in us. Now, here's the thing that we need to recognize. Just like in the wilderness, it wasn't like everybody, you know, all those years, everybody just stayed holy because God was there, right? There was sin in the camp. There was rebellion in the camp, <laughs> you know. And, and the same way as the Spirit is dwelling in us, the Scripture tells us that we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit in us. We can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit in us. And as a result of that, God's presence in us feels very distant. Think about what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is a present tense command, meaning we are always, every day commanded by God not to grieve the Holy Spirit. So what is grieve? If you grieve somebody, what is it? It means we're causing distress to someone. We're causing distress. We've brought on hurt or pain or saddened or broken someone's heart when we grieve somebody. Now, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the person of God now dwelling in us, living in us, and we can grieve the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The scripture tells us that. And so what, what's happening is, is that simply explain sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Just before that, it says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. It says, get rid of bitterness, get rid of rage, get rid of anger, get rid of brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. When we sin, what happens? We short-circuit the power. We short-circuit the intimacy with God, that sense of the presence. And the more we sin, the less sure we are of God's love for us. Does that not happen? Because the accuser comes in and begins to accuse us. And we begin to lose sight of God's love for us. We, we begin to give up the joy that we have. We doubt that even God will hear our prayers, and so we don't even pray. Has that ever happened to you? And it starts with us grieving the Holy Spirit of God who is in us. And then take it one step further, this idea that not only do we grieve, but we can quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. What does that mean? What's the idea of quenching here? Well, it isn't the idea of quenching your thirst. It's the other 
idea of quenching, which is to extinguish a fire, right? It's this idea of putting out, of dampening down, of rapidly cooling a fire. And so when the Spirit is in us and the Spirit's alive in us, the Spirit's leading us to do things, to do things that would be a blessing, to live out the character of heaven in people's lives. It could be as simple as, Ange, call your mom. She needs a call today. Now, I can rationalize that away. I can quench the Holy Spirit. I can say, no, I don't have the time to do that. The Spirit does it to us all the time. He's always prompting us to do things. Go pray for somebody. Or, oh, you could go out and you could be, um, you could even share with this person what you know about Jesus. There's so many ways that the Spirit leads us to be a blessing, to be Christ-like with other people. The Spirit comes in us and quenches us. You know, simple one, do a Thanksgiving basket. People will be blessed. They'll see the hand of God. It's just simple, simple little things. But then there's sort of, sort of larger ones, right? As a church, what does it call us to do? And can we quench the Spirit that's moving in us? with the way we grieve, not only the Spirit, but we also grieve ourselves as being a part of the Holy Spirit and that church. And when we do that, what happens is the presence of God, even though God is with us, the presence seems so distant that we then become susceptible to Satan's playground. We need to see that. And I, and I want it to, to bring that to you because I want us to recognize here in the midst of all this that here's the glorious thing. The promise is he will never leave us or forsake us. In Philippians it says he's going to complete the work that he started in us. That's a promise. So even if we get so far into the depths of that type of grieving and quenching, what does God do through the Holy Spirit? Eventually brings deep conviction of sin in our hearts and our lives like those in the desert where we experience a revival in repentance and humility coming to God and being restored and renewed by the covenant-keeping God who loves us. And so then we move out of that and now we feel the presence of God and there's a new joy in our life. There's a new bounce to our step. There's a new courage to what we're doing. Hallelujah. This is what God does. This is what God does. And so thankful that his presence is always with us. He doesn't leave us as the temple was left. But because of Christ, because of Christ. So here, just a few things as I think about this. You know, the idea, of course, is grieving the spirit is doing something he hasn't led us to do, and quenching the Spirit is not doing something he would have us to do. So what's it look like in daily life? Well, here's what I want to suggest. I want to suggest that you have and I have a revival every morning. Because you know what a revival is? It starts with recognizing that I am a man of unclean lips and my heart is deceitfully wicked. 
and I go in the morning and I bring my heart to God. And as I recognize that, I also recognize the power and blessing of his salvation. And I come and I bring my heart to him. And as I recognize that and I, I, I just lay it out there, I lay even my sinfulness out as the spirit moves in me. Now the spirit comes and reminds me, yes, but now because of that, the spirit's unleashed in my heart to reveal all the benefits I have in God, to reveal that his presence is with me this day, to restore joy in my heart, to walk towards my day with a new wisdom and a new hope because I've laid it before the Lord. And I start that morning with revival. And I can actually ask the Holy Spirit, how many of us pray to the Holy Spirit? You pray to the Father, you pray to Jesus. How many pray to the Holy Spirit? When he reveals the Lord's Prayer, he says, what's the gift he's going to give us? The Holy Spirit. We can pray directly to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He has a role in our lives. He's there to do what? To reveal truth to us, to bring the promises back to us. He's there to remind us of how God's promises can comfort us and encourage us and inspire us. The Holy Spirit's job is not only to remind us, but to empower us to do what we can't do, to be compelled by the love of Christ. And in doing that, we're living out of the presence of God in our lives. And we begin to reflect God. We begin to reflect God to wherever we're at. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are becoming more and more, as we do this, like Christ, so that when he appears, we are going to be like him. So as we become more like Jesus, we're living as Jesus did more and more in the presence of God. And our lives begin to resemble the life of Jesus as he walked the earth. Rather than the walking in the flesh, we begin to walk in the spirit and we begin to bring the character of heaven to earth as we walk and become more like Jesus. This is how powerful it is. Think about that for a second. This is what the spirit does. This is what this revival in our hearts do. This is what the presence of God. Jesus always lived in the presence of God. He always knew his father was with him. He knew where he was going because he was in intimate relationship with him. This is, this is what God brings to us. This is what the Holy Spirit is able to do in our hearts and our lives. That we can be a blessing, that we are both individually and corporately, a display of the glory of God as his presence goes. That's why I like the word aroma of Christ. You guys hear me say that a lot. When I walk into a building, when somebody walks into this room and God's presence is here, we are the aroma of God. Think about that camp moving out. We have the ability to move out in the same way to display the glory of God because his presence is with us. 
So I want to encourage us. Because it doesn't end, because what it does is we move now to our last place where the architect and builder is God himself. Listen to what Revelation 21 says, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Hallelujah. We are moving in that direction as the tabernacle moves from the desert to the temple to Jesus, the tabernacle himself, to us being those spiritual tabernacles to eventually that tabernacle of the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with God forever. Hallelujah. That's an amazing thing. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. So where do we go from here? I just want to encourage you. Have revival every morning. Come to the Lord. Humble your heart. Ask him for his guidance. Speak to the Holy Spirit. Let him give you the ability to recognize that you're living in the presence of God. What does that look like? I don't know. I was thinking about this. When I began to been thinking about this, when I first became a Christian, and, and sometimes I'd be like, oh, I don't want to think about that anymore. Because you know, I, I, really, I really can't look at pornography if I have the presence of God in my life. Like, it doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like, this is God's holiness in me. I, I, I can't. So I want to I pull that down so I can do something. But what's it like when you have that sense, I'm walking with God. And God is in me. The Holy God is in me. Think about that for a second. Ask the Holy Spirit to make that alive in you. How much difference would it make in the way you look at things, in the way you live your life, in the way you think about the things that you're doing? God goes with us. God is with us. By God's grace, we'll live more and more out of that deep sense of God's presence in our heart and in our lives. And as a result of that, we will display God's glory. We will be the aroma of Christ and we will be blessings as Jesus is a blessing. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning. I thank you for my brothers and my sisters here. I thank you, Lord. I thank you so much that you reveal to us who you are, but more than that, you reveal to us that we, as your people, live in your presence, that your promise all the way back in Exodus, even back in Genesis, the idea that you were going to dwell with your people, that through the Holy Spirit right now, we are dwelling with the living God. I thank you. I ask, Lord, that each of us would have revival in our life every day. And out of that revival and the renewing of the Spirit, we would experience your joy and your presence and your comfort 
We would have you guide us and lead us in the way we should go. We would have you empowering us to do things not of the flesh, but of the spirit. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful that we're not orphans. We have not been left alone as children. We can cry out and, and ask you and ask the Holy Spirit to be alive in our hearts and our lives, that we might love others, that we might step into lives and be a blessing because we've been blessed. Oh, help us not to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, I pray. Bless us now as only you can, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Fill us again and again with this deep knowledge that we are God's children, loved, cared for, and never ever abandoned. May that fill our hearts and our minds. May that inform our hope. And I pray this in Jesus' name.